Uh, Vinny, why don't you tell us uh, a little bit uh, about yourself and um, how you relate to the, the tech industry? Yeah, so, you know, um, I started my first uh, company while I was an engineering student at University of Waterloo and um, subsequently was part of five startups, um, you know, working my way up to being CEO of three of them. And those companies were acquired by um, Boeing, Motorola, Qualcomm, Mitel. Um, so that's sort of what I, you know, how I got going in the tech startup industry. 13 years ago, I decided to switch careers a little bit, uh, still focus on startups, but rather than running startups, I wanted to help other entrepreneurs. And I did that by um, starting to teach entrepreneurship to business school students Boston University and becoming a venture capitalist. Awesome. That's the, what was that uh, that transition like to, to go into the venture capitalist world? Well, I, I like to say that it, it was like going from being a, a parent to being a grandparent. So, you know, running a company is a lot like parenting, right? Uh, you know, you have to be on uh, 24-7, whereas, uh, you know, as an investor or as an advisor, um, you know, you, you only need to be involved uh, to the extent that, you know, the entrepreneur needs you. You know, um, as it, I find as somebody uh, originally from Toronto and now in the, the VC space, so to speak, Waterloo's well represented here uh, with different companies, different founders, and uh, even just uh, employees. You must feel a, sort of a sense of, of pride to see your, your alma mater just out here being so successful. Absolutely. I mean, um, the uh, impact that Waterloo students have had in the entrepreneurial ecosystem are, are felt uh, not just in Canada, but uh, definitely uh, here in the U.S., uh, most certainly in Silicon Valley, but also in the Boston area. And yeah, it's great to see. But, you know, I have to tell you that when I was in school there and, you know, started uh, my first company, there wasn't that same kind of entrepreneurial support uh, system that exists now at Waterloo. Now it's amazing. Now they have the infrastructure in place and you have like Communitectus down the street. Um, so when it comes to like looking at uh, overall, like the university infrastructure and like the influence it has on the tech industry, um, I think a lot of people underestimate just how prevalent uh, a, a part universities play in developing some of these uh, companies. Would you uh, be able to give some insight on onto like how a, a university is able to impact the development uh, of a startup? Yeah, no, absolutely. So, so really, there's, and I'm going to generalize. There's two types of startups that come out of a university environment. The first one, which is what most people would know about, are students, right, who come up with ideas, form teams, and you know, almost every university now has some form of an entrepreneurship center that supports these students' startups. Um, the other one, which is I'm where I'm much more focused these days, uh, it are spinouts that are based on research that's being done in a university. So these are generally deep tech uh, companies, not you know, not your next software app, and. Um, those companies also have support within universities, 
not to the same extent as they are for students. Sometimes, you know, university will have, um, you know, a translational gap fund, uh, you know, to do some basic proof of concept studies of this technology. Um, but that's an area where I'm very focused these days um, is to really help academic spin outs from universities, particularly in Massachusetts. What are some of the um, what are some of the common elements in place um, that makes I, let me re, let me rephrase this. Um, what makes someone like you a necessary asset for somebody uh, in a university setting trying to build their next uh, the next great tech company? Well, you know these academic um, inventors. Um, you know, they, they've grown up in a, a world where, you know, they're running labs or, you know, being individual researchers and have never sort of gained the experience that's needed to start a company, right? To start and run uh, a young company. And so the thing that, that I'm bringing to the table um, are is a platform that sort of connects these academic inventors with um, uh, entrepreneurial champions. So these are, you know, people who've done multiple startups and, you know, know how to organize to get resources, raise money, know how to build a team and, you know, and how to deliver product or service to a customer. How, uh, in terms of uh, frequency, um who is it that kind of initiates that relationship more? Is it the university that's like, hey, Vinit, you know, we have an interesting tech. Can you help us find somebody to, um, to, to, to realize it and make it a product? Or are you getting uh, individual entrepreneurs that are coming to you like, Vinit, you know, I, I, I have this great idea. Do you know, a tech, you know the technology that could uh, help me realize that or, or somebody that, that can? Um, how, you know, in terms of, I guess, frequency, which one's the more likely scenario for you? The former one is the more likely scenario where, you know, you've got the academic inventor because, you know, they, there's tech transfer offices at all these universities who uh, are patenting stuff. So, you know, that kind of deal flow is, is the primary deal flow. Occasionally I'll, I'll get an entrepreneur that says, Hey, you know, I want to build something you know, to, to impact wet, uh, AMD, right. Uh, macular degeneration. That's rare. Now, is that rare because, um, a lot of entrepreneurs that are outside of the ecosystem just don't have access to those kind of resources or is it rare because, uh, of a IP issue or of a, of a licensing, uh, complication? No, I think it's rare because there are few entrepreneurs that are that uh, proactive, right? Who have sort of identified mm-hmm. a problem in the in the marketplace, and then they're, then they're going to go find all the intellectual property they can get in order to uh, fulfill that. It's just not that common in deep tech. So let's say hypothetically, um, there was a, a person that that was crazy enough to try and do something like that. How could they? How could uh, they, as a as an entity, as a person, best approach a university or a research if they wanted to license uh, or purchase the IP? Well, I mean, identifying it is not difficult because you know 
these inventors publish, and so you can see their papers. Many of these uh, inventions are available in a list from, you know, from the university. The thing you don't know is, you know, whether that technology is available or not and, you know, what the licensing terms might be. So that is a negotiation. And, you know, frankly, not all universities do a good job of, of licensing. And so, you know, the general feeling amongst entrepreneurs is that universities are difficult to work with. And, you know, that's something um, I addressed when I was running the tech transfer office at Boston University. We made it much easier um, by having standardized agreements, by, you know, doing things online, uh, by having quick turnarounds, and also hiring the kind of people into the organization that were more business development oriented. And I'm, I'm, and that's uh, that's actually pretty interesting. Um, I know that the Boston tech scene is uh, is actually a, a pretty interesting one and, and a really developing one. There's a you might not be aware of it, Vinny, but there's actually a, a bit of a rivalry between the cities of Toronto and Boston mm-hmm. um, in sports and technology. Uh, it's it's it seems to just keeps keeps getting deeper mm-hmm. and deeper. Um, <laughs> But from the insider point of view of, of someone that, um, you know, was, was part in running the TTO, what are the important aspects of a deal and how can a startup best align with like a university's interests? Well, um, you know, just addressing um, first that rivalry. I mean, in reality, Boston and Montreal are real rivals, right? And, um, you know, I grew up in Montreal and, and uh, the rivalry between the Canadians and the Bruins was legendary. And, and continues to be so today, much more so than, you know, the Maple Leafs. Um, oh, uh, my, my Toronto friends um, are probably going to be in my mentions after this. Thank you. <laughs> and, um, yeah, and so the second part of your question, I mean, look, ultimately most um, tech transfer offices at universities, uh, you know, understand that, their role is to take these academic inventions that were primarily funded by, you know, government funding. And their goal is to sort of get those technologies into the marketplace to impact society. And that, uh, you know, going to an existing company that has the resources that that's willing to license the technology and develop it is your best option. But it's, it's, the problem is that there are very few companies that are willing to step in and take these technologies at this very early stage. And that's why, you know, spin outs or startup is a good gap filler, right? And so increasingly you're starting to see TTOs um, aligning themselves to, um, you know, startups that are licensing their technology. Got you. And um, so I imagine that this uh, and like you like you mentioned earlier, you made the efforts to kind of streamline um, your university's process. But I, I imagine even then that there can still be some points of friction between, you know, the TTO and inventor or, or TTO and and, um, and the industry or startup. Can you explain those a bit and perhaps like maybe give us a few tips on how to avoid um those certain tense situations or potentially how we can smooth those over if we're already off to a bad foot? Yeah, I think, you know, it works on both sides. So, um, 
on the you know entrepreneurial side, um, you, you know, when you see a standard licensing agreement from a university, it seems daunting. It's you know it'll be forty plus pages long, and it'll be full of um, uh, you know terms and conditions that feel egregious. Um, you know, to give you an example, most universities will not warrant that their IP is any good, okay? So, you, and you would expect people to do that. But um, most universities also will not warrant that they even have title to the IP. And, and that feels very wrong, you know, when you, when you go in. But there's a reason why those kind of terms have crept into these licensing agreements because universities are a very big target for lawsuits, you know, because of their endowments and, you know, their big enterprises. So as an entrepreneur, you have to realize that many of those kind of terms are really non-negotiable and wasting legal fees on trying to negotiate those terms out is, is a waste of time and money. So you've got to really focus on the business terms. Those are the important terms in a licensing agreement. A lot of the other legal terms and conditions are pretty much non-negotiable. You can save yourself a lot of time and money by knowing that. I guess that, that also can help inform you about like decisions you're, you're making with pursuing this route um, and what to expect. Um, that's, that's actually a, a pretty interesting point because I, I feel like a lot of times people um, might struggle to see the university as like you, like you pointed out, um, something that uh, can attract the attention of a lot of, uh, can be very vulnerable or very exposed to a lot of uh, legal ramifications. Um, so that, again, that, that insight and uh, understanding why those kind of frictions are in there is a really good place to start. Um, what about when the relationship is all, like is already well under, like maybe the terms have been, have been settled and uh, somewhere down the line, maybe through production, things start getting icy, things start getting fro uh, frosty. You know, are there any tips you could have in terms of being able to smooth over uh, a, a relationship that might have been potentially souring? Yeah, and, you know, I, I think startups should think of the university like they think of their other investors. So, you know, when, when the university licenses their technology, they probably will also take some equity but those license terms will include things like, you know, repaying uh, sunk and ongoing patent costs. We'll probably have some milestone payments. And, and generally where, you know, friction arises is um, that startups are always, you know, cash constrained. Not always, but usually. And, um, and you know, one, one always feels that, uh, you can push off making payments to your university, you know, based on your license terms, because that's not as important as getting, you know, the next uh, experiment done uh, in order to get the product to market. That may be the case, but like any other investor that you owe money to, you know, you do have to spend time managing that relationship. And, and this is what a lot of, um, startup licensees don't do so. But if you think of that, if the university as an investor, 
just like your other investors, then you know you put them in the same class. You make sure you communicate with them regularly, and that way, you know, if you have to put off a payment, it's not a surprise. Okay, uh, I guess at the end of the day, um, people that are at the people at universities are people too. So, you know, treating them with the same respect and the same uh, the, just the common courtesy can go a long way in terms of your relationship. Um, so, Vinny, I, I do, you know, I, I myself, uh, I'm a big admirer of entrepreneurs and successful journeys and exits, and you've had a, a few under your belt. Um, out of the companies that you've, you've kind of started, is there one that is like close to your heart, like a personal favor that you still think about uh, those days and putting, putting in the work in the office to get it off the ground? Um, any of them stand out to you? And if so, why? Um I have to say that, you know, just like a parent, you don't pick favorites of your children. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, you know, uh, they all sort of stay in my mind uh, in different ways because, you know, every one of them sort of has lessons learned that, that still help you, you know, even today, even though some of this stuff was, um, you know, 30 years ago. Um, the one thing is funny, I was just, Playing around of golf uh, with with one of my former employees, and you know, I was remarking to him the one thing that was common amongst almost all the startups I did was that they were very early, and you know, markets weren't quite ready. So, and this is sort of a common fault um, that engineers, I think, have because you know we're. We're so driven by the technology that sometimes we don't realize that the market's not ready. And, you know, I'll give you an example. So, you know, I had a company, Kinetic Computer. We were the first company to start putting, um, you know, Windows and, uh, you know, uh, computers with GPS and touchscreens into vehicles. And, uh, you know, we it, they were expensive because they were custom built and we, we did well. We had all kinds of, you know, we, you know, our biggest customer was American Freightways, which is now FedEx Ground. Um, and, and I remember a fleet of 5,000 taxis came and said, hey, this would be great if we could, you know, put this in taxis. And I said, no problem, $3,500 per taxi. And they said, well, we don't want to spend that money. Six years later, they got clobbered by Uber, right? And why was that? It was because smartphones came along, right? First you know, interestingly enough, the product that I had had a RIM radio in it, uh, but, it, you know, RIM even hadn't come out with their BlackBerry yet. And so once Apple came out with, you know, the iPhone, everything changed, you know, because of volume, those devices got cheap enough and suddenly, you know, they were uh, useful um, in applications such as taxis. So I... I would say that's one thing that I feel is common amongst them. Um, other than that, I, I love all my startups. Awesome. Well, uh, it's it's funny that you mentioned that a common theme was that you were too early to market. Um, you know, in some cases, my, my dad, he, he loves his quotes. But um, one thing that one that always stuck with me was, he said to me, uh, son, you're either a pioneer or the best at something um, in order to like really take over a market. And, it, and, it, and it's 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 um, it's interesting that you, you find that a lot of entrepreneurs really rush to get to the market first and maybe they do it a bit prematurely. 
Um, in terms of, you know, general advice for um, for people looking to start their own businesses, uh, entrepreneurs in tech or otherwise, especially during this pandemic, um, do you have any advice that you would, you would give them? Um, uh, any words of wisdom or comfort? Yeah, and by the way, your your father uh, was is absolutely right with that piece of advice, and and frankly, you can uh, even see it. You know, the analogy I like to use that's very similar is uh, you know you can either be riding the wave, you know, as the wave comes in, or you can be on the shore and wait till the water recedes to pick up the nuggets, right? Oh. So, and, like and, and, you know, if you look at two sort of consumer electronics companies that embody those two models, Sony, you know, was the wave rider and Machista, which is the Panasonic brand and, you know, and, and uh, Technics and, you know, all the other brands, they're all up under uh, Machista. You know, they were, they were always a bigger, more profitable company than Sony because they're the ones that, you know, waited till, Sony created markets and then they came in afterwards with multiple brands and, you know, they're fast followers as they're called. Any last words you'd like to, to share with our listeners? Yeah, I think, um, you know, I, I moved um, south to the U.S. Um, in the 80s because I, I just, you know, wanted to be somewhere where there were other entrepreneurs who are as ambitious as me. I think the scene in Canada has changed a lot. And, um, you know, this is always a great time to start a company anywhere, you know, during a downturn. Most great companies were created in downturns. But I think Canada is a great place to start a company. And um, I would highly encourage the entrepreneurs in your listening audience uh, to think about that. And, um, you know, a lot of the support and stuff you need is there in Canada. Plus, you know, uh, I'm also on the board of the Canadian Entrepreneurs of New England. And we're always ready here to help entrepreneurs from Montreal, Toronto and others um, uh, to enter the U.S. market and, you know, just to encourage them to be ambitious.